Letters to a Dead Friend About Zen. This episode's theme song was recorded by Box of Chocolates. Today's Letter to a Dead Friend was read on September 7th, 2019 at the Angel City Zen Center, Los Angeles, California, USA. We depend on your donations to support this podcast. To donate, go to hardcorezen.info slash donate. That's hardcorezen.info slash donate. Dear Marky, I want to get a little weird on you in this letter. I hope you don't mind. At the moment that the Buddha became enlightened, he said, I and the great earth and all beings simultaneously achieve the way. This version of events doesn't come from the earliest stories of Buddha's life. It can be found in a 13th century account by a Japanese monk named Keizan, a student of Dogen. He, in turn, most likely got it from an earlier source, probably Chinese. But as far as we know, it doesn't go back to the historical Buddha who lived about 2,000 years even before that. The Flower Garland Sutra, which was composed about 2,000 years ago, has the Buddha saying, Now I see all living beings everywhere, and I see that each of them possesses the wisdom and virtue of awakening, but because of their delusions and attachments they cannot realize it. This is older than Kazan's writings, but it's still 500 years after the time of the historical Buddha. If you're anything like me, Marky, that probably sounds like a load of old bollocks. Not just in terms of history, but what Buddha purportedly says here sounds crazy pants. I mean that. Even though I think I understand what these poetic expressions are trying to get at, there's a big part of me to which it all sounds like bullshit. So I want to try to dig into that for a page or two, or however many pages it takes. It sounds like Buddha is saying that he simultaneously experienced the private thoughts and experiences of every human being and animal and bug and microorganism in the whole world, not to mention whatever aliens are out there. This would also mean that every experience everyone ever had suddenly got smooshed down into one singular experience. In other words, he actually became all other beings in that moment and all other beings became him. Thus, all of the beings in existence had exactly the same experience in that moment. What else could becoming one with everything mean? Shakyamuni isn't the only one who claims to have become one with everything. Plenty of contemporary people have also said the same thing happened to them. Mystical experiences in which a person says they have achieved universal oneness with all things are fairly common. Some of these claims are clearly from crazy people, but not all of them. But, of course, in spite of what those people have said, that cannot possibly happen. We know for sure the experience of universal oneness never happened in the past because we would have known about it if it had happened, right? Because if Deepak Chopra, let's say, experienced universal oneness, then he must have become one with me. But I have no recollection of becoming one with Deepak Chopra. And it seems like becoming one with Deepak Chopra is the sort of thing I'd probably remember. Every one of us is trapped in our own body and our own mind. Every experience is an individual experience. Even the experience of complete oneness with the entire universe is still something that happens to just one person at one time. 
If this were not merely a private individual experience, then why do the people who've had it have to tell us about it? It should be obvious to everybody. Therefore, the only conclusion that can be drawn is that the whole mystical experience thing is just a coping mechanism. Life is cruel, harsh, miserable, and this ongoing existential trauma makes some of us hallucinate an experience of oneness, or whatever you want to call it. It's like the way some victims of intense trauma develop multiple personality disorders and things like that. The brain responds to trauma in bizarre ways. And isn't just living in and of itself an incredible trauma? There are those who say that mystical experience is too great, too affirmative, and too wonderful, too full of awe and majestic mystery to just be nothing more than a product of psychological processes. But the existence of dissociative personality disorders disproves that claim. Multiple, completely distinct personalities can emerge in a single person with none of the personalities having any seeming knowledge of the others. This coping mechanism completely alters the worldview of those who experience it. It's a response to suffering, severe, and traumatic events. If a single traumatic event can produce this kind of weird coping effect in some people, why couldn't the endless struggle of just being alive and the fear of death that permeates our whole lives cause someone to have some kind of mystical experience? These so-called mystical experiences help some people cope, and yet the reality it conveys is just an elaborate fiction. Sometimes we need those fictions to survive, but that doesn't make them real. There can be nothing in our future except the ending of consciousness, absolute void, and the total extinction of all experience. There is no endless joy of heaven, just endless non-existence. You, Marky, know that now because you're dead. By which I mean that you don't know anything at all anymore. I'm just writing these letters to myself, obviously. The foregoing is an argument I've heard a number of times in multiple variations over the years. And I take it seriously. I'm trying to present it as strongly as possible because I think it is worth taking seriously. I hope I have convinced you that any assertion by anybody that they have become one with everything is the description of an elaborate hallucination. When I first started getting into Zen, I lived at a crummy place in Kent, Ohio known as the F Model House. Do you remember that place? The band The F Models used to rehearse there, and some of them lived in the house, hence the name. It was such a trashy place, worse than the clubhouse, the place you and I shared later on. Anyway, there was this psych major named Alan who lived in one of the rooms upstairs. He was a grad student, so he seemed really old to me at the time. I doubt he was even 30 back then. I was about 19, so even if he was 25, he would have seemed old to me. He seemed wise and well-versed in the ways of the world, plus he knew psychology. He wasn't just talking out his ass. He gave me an earful of the argument I just laid out for you when we both lived at the F-model house. I listened to him, but I did the Zen thing anyhow. In high school, I used to watch televangelists like Jim Baker, Jimmy Swaggart, or our local favorites like Ernest Angley, whose mega-church of the airwaves you could see right off Route 8 in Akron. The city was a real hotbed of that stuff. Remember how the televangelist Rex Humbard tried to build a revolving restaurant on top of a tower in Cuyahoga Falls just north of Akron, but he ran out of money? That left us with the famous Rex's Erection, a monumental phallic symbol visible for miles in all directions. 
Those guys all believed in heaven and transcendent realities and mystical experiences, but they were clearly full of shit. The argument that transcendent or mystical experiences are merely hallucinations or elaborate coping mechanisms seems absolutely watertight, airtight even. There isn't any possible way to counter it that would be at all convincing to someone who holds the view upon which the argument is based. Like I said, I get that point of view. I really do. The problem for me is this. The experiences I've had have been so visceral, so real, so cutting to the core of things, that to deny them would make no more sense than denying that I'm sitting at a table typing out a letter to you right now. It wasn't so much an experience that came and went as a change in point of view. It is a change that runs so deep that the point of view I had before seems like fiction, while the one I have now seems closer to what must be actual. I don't feel any need to convince anyone of this either. I guess it might seem like I'm trying to convince you of it, but it's not really that. What I'm trying to do is dig into something, to push it and see if it breaks. So far, it hasn't broken yet. I do not want to replace reality with a comforting fiction. It's tempting, I admit. I can even see the logic of doing so. I can see how it would seem to make sense to deny reality and retreat into fantasy. If reality is so terrible there's no way to come to terms with it, and if we're all going to die anyhow, then why not retreat into a pretty fantasy instead? Maybe people who join kooky religious cults are the smart ones, and we're the dummies for not joining them. Maybe being lost in an appealing dream is the best way to be happy. I am willing to consider that possibility. I've even tried it a couple of times, to believe in things that were absurd but nonetheless comforting. I could never get totally committed. My desire to get a sense of what is real seems to outweigh my desire to be happily deluded. I've also seen no evidence that being delusional is the true way to happiness. It always seems to come crashing down at some point. I'm not concerned that my beliefs about my own experiences will be disproven. The fact is, I really don't know what to believe about them. I'm not satisfied with even the traditional Buddhist ways of framing these sorts of experiences, other than one. There is a Buddhist tradition of accepting that there are things we cannot understand no matter how hard we try, and that there are aspects of life that cannot be put into any of the categories we have invented to try to explain them, not even the categories favored by Buddhists. That one I accept. There have been a lot of aspects of my own lived experience that do not fit the usual explanations of how life works. There have been so many, in fact, that I have no alternative but to deeply distrust the usual, conventional way people understand what life is. Now I admit that my so-called mystical experiences could be delusions. It could be that I've had something like a schizophrenic episode from which I've never been able to fully recover. Clearly that happens to people. There are some guys living under a bridge a couple of blocks from me, many of whom don't seem to share the same psychological world as I do, even though they appear to be physically present on the planet I inhabit. Yet I tend to believe I am more correct about how things work in this world than they are. Still, maybe you could say I am a special type of schizophrenic person. Only my particular hallucination allows me to get on with things like earning a living and dealing with other people, unlike the hallucinations many schizophrenic people tend to have. 
but I'm not so sure that just because my outlook is really weird, that means it's wrong. Which is an argument that I suppose a schizophrenic person could also make. Hold on, I'm losing my way here. Let me try a different way of getting into this stuff. For example, take the problem of the future. What is the future? Like, really? We take it for granted that there is such a thing as the future, but we never see it. I'm not even sure that future is a concept that has any real validity. I mean, I know that if I book a flight to Finland today, I can reasonably expect to be allowed to board a Finn airplane on some day yet to come. I am reasonably sure that if I write down these words and come back two hours later, they'll still be here. I'm pretty sure that even though I just ate lunch, I'll probably be hungry again in a few hours. But the other thing I've noticed is that it is always now. I can remember the past and plan for the future, yet every real experience I have takes place in the present moment. I also know that the future is never very predictable. You can make plans for things, but stuff always changes. The past, too, seems somewhat malleable. My memories of the past change. Other people's memories of events that I've also been present for often don't match my own. Even physical evidence of past events often seems open to numerous contradictory explanations. Who shot JFK? For that matter, where did I put my keys? The past doesn't seem to be as absolute and solid as I tend to assume it is. Dogen talked about being time. He said that time and being are not separate things. Existence is time. Time is only the present moment. Existence is the present moment. Who I am does not seem to be a thing that exists apart from this moment. My experience of this moment and my existence at this moment seem to be bound together so tightly that to call them two different things feels absurd. You and I are time, Dogen says. We are not beings who exist in time, who have a beginning and ending on some cosmic chessboard called time. Rather, we are time itself. We, our very selves, are manifestations of time, and as such, we are all of time. To be is to be time. Dogen also said that all of time is contained in this single moment. The entire past and the entire future are right here. And yet our experience of time is usually one of being cut off from all other moments of time but this one, and all other places in space except where we are right now, and all other beings except the being we inhabit at the moment but sometimes that feeling of separation goes away. In conclusion, I think the best thing I can say about time is that it is really, really weird. So don't take it for granted that it's exactly the way you think it is. Time for me to go. Brad. Uh, thank you for the talk. Uh, you mentioned certain, I guess, mystical experiences that you have. Mm. Uh, can you, uh, I guess, could you describe uh, one or a couple of them? Uh... I kind of prefer not to, <laughs> um, and there's a reason for that. I, I, years ago, when I was still in Japan and I was still working with Nishijima Roshi, I had a, a, a rather big one of these experiences, 
and I wrote about it. And I showed Nishijima Roshi what I wrote, and he said, oh, that, that sounds good. And then I put it up on my, well, it wasn't even a blog then, but I put it on a website. And then later I re rewrote that and put it in my book, Hardcore Zen. But, um, so you can find it there, and you can find it also, I re-rewrote it in a book called There Is No God and He Is Always With You. And... But the thing is, that's not part of the the Soto tradition in Zen, but the the one started by Dogen. There is nowhere I can think of that Dogen really describes a, a sort of mystical experiences. There's a couple of things where he describes having strange dreams. Um, uh, yeah, there's one where he describes uh, having a, well, there's a, I can't remember the whole story, but there's a couple of these things. But, but his so-called enlightenment experience that, that tends to be a subject of conversation for a lot of people in American Buddhism uh, is nowhere written about in his writings. So doing what I did in writing about one of those experiences was a little unorthodox. And I sort of regret having done it, which is one of the reasons I did it again. One of the reasons I rewrote it for, for you know, wrote it in one book and rewrote it in another book was because I, I thought that the first book had given people the wrong idea about what happened and what significance it had. And so I rewrote it again and I found out that that second one also gave people the wrong idea. <laughs> so, so I just thought, ah, then maybe that's why they never talk about it. But, but there are things that happen and, and to everybody it happens to, it's a little different. But, but it's, it's, it's a kind of, uh, it's usually a kind of experience where you, the barriers between yourself and the rest of the universe breakdown and a lot of the the first part of that letter I think this is actually reading it back just now I realized it's probably the reason I didn't put it in it came from a comment somebody had made on a video a YouTube video I put up and I took a lot of his his comments where he where he felt that he had completely disproven any possibility that a mystical experience could ever happen to anybody. Uh, and, and what was more interesting to me than his arguments disproving it is I could follow the logic of his arguments and I could go, yeah, that makes sense. But it doesn't change the, it doesn't change what, you know, it doesn't change my, my own personal history. Um, and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't convince me that I'm schizophrenic. So I think maybe something else is going on, but I could be wrong. <laughs> yeah. was the, can you give us a sense, maybe you wrote about this in one of the books that she, when she talked about yeah. this, a sense of the before and after of how that, those experiences changed you? Yeah, there's a, there was a sort of, uh, I remember at the time trying to talk to somebody about it and saying, uh, it sort of felt like I'd been driving along I think, I think it's because I'd just been to Hawaii and this actually happened to me in Hawaii. It felt like I'd been driving along in a tunnel for my entire life and then suddenly I'm out of the tunnel and I go, wow, you know, I thought this whole place was this tunnel, you know, and, uh, and, and just noticing, oh, it's not, it's not all a tunnel. Um, 
so so it's it's like a change in in perspective in that sense it's not it's not really but the thing that the the problem with the sort of before and after model for these experiences is that you can get stuck on that and i and i see people who do get stuck on it to where they're convinced that that they've changed and in in a sense they have but they they're convinced they've become something different you know so so you'll get I, I've seen people get way stuck in that and then you know start putting on a, a show for everybody to try to display this new thing that they've become and, and I understand that temptation because I, I had it too uh, and I was glad to have a teacher who who knocked it out of me and and you know not and not in a not in a way that at the time felt particularly gentle <laughs> you know it was more, more like oh shut up about that you know and um, and I think that's important I, I think if you don't I think it's one of these places where when people ask about what's the importance of having a teacher that I'll point out that that having a teacher can help you get past some of those uh, things that that happen to people sometimes and that a lot of the people who go terribly wrong with experiences like that are, are, are people who have nobody to bounce it off of, you know, who, 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 uh, who don't, you don't have anybody to relate it to. And, and if, you've never, if you've never run into anybody who's had an experience like that and then you have one, I can see why you'd be tempted to decide, you know, you'd just, you know, become jesus christ or something you know i don't know what sort of versions there are out there but but yeah so so the the change is sort of and and it's not something it's also something you don't you can't hold on to which is one of the reasons why it's not it's not good to get stuck there because it becomes a you know you become like one of those like a middle-aged guy who was the quarterback of his high school football team when they won the championship game and just won't shut up about it, you know, and he's 55 and he just won't shut up about, you know, something that happened in 1981. And, 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 uh, and it, you know, it, it just, uh, you don't, you don't want to get like that. And it's easy to kind of get like that and, and define yourself that way. It's what's interesting about the, the ego is that the ego can, can even take the complete dissolution of the ego and turn that into something that feeds the ego, you know, and, and becomes like a badge of like, yeah, I did that. And, and so that's, I think that's why, you know, and I feel like a lot of my work in the last few years has been trying to correct the mistake of ever having talked about this stuff to begin with, which is part of the reason I wrote that particular letter. I think we're all here because we made that mistake of talking about it in the first place. Maybe. <laughs> so. Hope not everybody. <laughs> well, this. It's I, I imagine it's hard to be a teacher, or to be a writer about Zen or any kind of spiritual writer because any spiritual books that you read from people are largely around that. that yeah. That they had some sort of experience or their life changed or their their perspective changed. And, and that can be so valuable to somebody who is, you know, just hanging out and thinking about the, I appreciate that you mentioned the, 
a comforting delusion, like, yeah. <laughs> like getting offered a comforting delusion, like yeah. the idea of heaven or the idea of even mindfulness, I feel like, um, is, is an alternative to the way that a, you know, a regular person with a regular ego sees the world. Um, and also being crazy is an alternative. <laughs> and, and so given those options, um, it's, it's really, I feel like it's beneficial when people can talk about it, they can talk about that change of perspective and talk about what it's like to live in the world with less boundaries. Yeah. And, and that that's actually okay. It's not being crazy. It might feel really vulnerable. Yeah. Um, and people might smack you around a little bit for talking about it, but it's okay. It's an okay way to approach the world and even beneficial. Yeah, I think so, and I, I think you can. I think you can find a way to work with it that that does make it valuable. But I really do understand the the Soto sort of silence about it. Like, no, I, neither Nishijima Roshi nor Tim ever really described anything to me about you know their experiences around this. Uh, Tim did a little bit but not in any great detail. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a funny thing. Definitely. <laughs> Thanks. So can I switch tact a little bit? Sure. Since we did the well-being ceremony. Yeah. Which is kind of related in a way. Um, in that last time you talked about woo-woo, and I think <laughs> your talk today could definitely fall into the category of woo-woo. Yeah, yeah, it could, yeah. Um, <laughs> Like, I had this thought last time that just, like, it was this little tiny nugget of a thought that wasn't fleshed out, so I couldn't verbalize it. But um, we were kind of talking about, does the well-being ceremony work or not? Yeah. And, like, some people were like, yeah, it works, you know, because they had an example. And other people were like, no, it doesn't work, because they had an example. And, and later on, when I was able, like, it was one of those things where, like, actually, I didn't actually think of, like, later on it just appeared in my head fully formed, you know, because I didn't sit there trying to work it out. Um, that we were looking at it, and this goes to the first part of your talk today, like, we were looking at it in this very, um, like, on-off, black or white kind of way, when there could be, there could be other factors going on. Yeah. That could influence things, like... Is the person open to it? Is the person close to it? You know, because it's just like, if you've ever tried to help somebody, and I don't mean in a kind of like, I don't know, woo-woo way, but like, you know, you try to help someone physically that you know, who just completely is like, no, I don't want your help. Yeah. Right? So they're not going to get any help from you. So I think, you know, that kind of thing could happen in this other area that we're maybe not exactly sure what's going on. Um, but there could be all these other factors that we just aren't taking into consideration. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. Um, and, and, and I had one other example, which is I do this uh, form of energy healing called pranic healing. And there's this um, one technique, it's got a bunch of different things, you know, and it, it does things like a cookbook, there, depending on the ailment, there's a different thing that you did. And uh, one of them is called the Miraculous Healing Technique, and it, it, you do it for someone like at the sort of end of their life when they're going to die. Mm -hmm. And the idea is it'll help them 
uh, transition out of this life less painfully. So you could say, like the way that I think of it is, you know, we're kind of like this amalgamation of um, like the physical and the mental or there's a physical body and there's whatever animates us and when you see someone after they're dead it's just the physical body. So whatever, whatever that other thing is, like they have to unmesh somehow. So it's supposed to make that less painful and easier. But for some people when you do it, they suddenly get better. Like someone who's supposed to be dead will just like sit up and be okay. Mm -hmm. Why? Do you know what I mean? Like there's some other factor going on that some people it causes them to just die quickly and other people it makes them sit up and be well. I don't know what that factor is, but there's something else going on that we clearly have no clue what's going on. Um, and I know that's, that's a really woo-woo example to give you guys, but um, yeah, that's, you know, my only experience with that particular thing is with a cat of mine who, who I had someone else do it because I was too emotionally involved and, um, you know, we left the cat because I had to take the other cat away so it wouldn't be there and we came back and the cat was gone. Um, but, uh, yeah. So anyway, I think there's these other mitigating factors that we just have no idea of. And in your talk today, even that sort of viewpoint of, like, there's no way these things could happen, they're crazy, it's making assumptions that could be missing other assumptions. Yeah. You know? I mean, it may be logical, but that doesn't mean that there aren't other things going on that we don't, don't know. Yeah, I think that's a. I, I think that's true. I, I, there's a lot. There's a lot of things going on in this world that we don't quite understand, and there's a lot of things that sort of the rational, scientific method doesn't really count for, and and I, I it doesn't really can't really account for. I guess is what I mean to say, and and. I think some of those things have their own logic to them, but it's not, it doesn't really fit. And, and it just, it just goes to show that we don't understand everything nearly as well as we think we do. You know, there's a certain arrogance to that idea that we, we've got it all worked out. So, so yeah, I think there's a lot going on and I, I don't know, I take the well-being ceremony with a grain of salt. I, I, I put a friend of mine on it who's in the hospital and, and, you know, we, we just do it. I don't know if I told this story the last time it came up, because uh, I usually tell this story every time somebody brings up the well-being ceremony, which is I read a book years ago called Lotus in the Fire. Did I talk about this? Lotus in the Fire was a book about a, a Zen practitioner who had cancer, and he went and he he wrote it himself, and it's a real harrowing book about his experiences around getting cancer treatment or some, and stuff. But one of the things he talks about is that he was comatose at one point and he came out of his coma remembering people uh, chanting and he found out that the, the, his Zen center had done a well-being ceremony for him while he was in, in a coma and, uh, and he seems to have had some experience of it. They didn't go around his bed doing it, they did it at their, their temple so it wasn't even that he you know, could have heard it physically. Uh, you know, and things like that, there's a lot of stuff that goes on, you just don't know, you know? I mean, I'm not going to give up uh, Western medicine or anything <laughs> anytime soon, but, but I think there's, there's other stuff going on that, that probably factors into things. 
Even in, even in terms of Western medicine, if you have a doctor that you know and trust, I think your chances of that doctor being able to, to help you with a physical ailment are probably better than if you went to a, a stranger, even if that stranger supposedly is more knowledgeable than the doctor you, you uh, have a connection with. I've actually had that happen in my life, you know, so, so uh, yeah. You know, I have one other thing to add. I don't want to take all the time, but, you know, when you're talking about even, like, the scientific method. Yeah. I mean, the scientific method, so it was, because I studied philosophy of science. Hmm. Um, so there's this guy named Karl Popper who was really uh, important in the early 20th century. And he was looking at the scientific method and kind of breaking it down. And the group of people that he was doing philosophy with, they were breaking it down. And eventually what they realized is that science can never actually prove anything. It can only ever disprove things. And part of the reason is because there are other assumptions yeah. that you don't even rec that the scientist doesn't even recognize that they've made. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. I mean, like a cause and effect relationship, there's always more causes than you can possibly account for. So, so yeah, you can, you can figure out what causes aren't producing the effect, but figuring out what cause is producing the effect is much more difficult. Yeah, I think, you're, yeah, I think that's true. I'm not sure I want to say something, but apparently I'm gonna. Um, <laughs> Because I'm trying to find my place in, in this. Mm. Uh, because on one hand, you know, I've, I've come into this school of thought. I'm like, okay, so I'm going to take, I'm going to learn this you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and be in that discussion. And I also come from a mystic background. Mm. And so then I'm like holding that, like, not psychotic. I know because my therapist says I'm not. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's. Also, I've been, I have been really lucky. My, my father's been my teacher for a long time, and he's also a mystic, but I'll come to him with experiences. He'll be like, that's nice, doesn't matter. Like, yeah. Okay, thanks, going back to my thing. <laughs> you know, so I think it was a good balance of, yes, these things happen, but that to be really careful in the discernment of what that means and what you do with it. Yeah, yeah, I think so. You know? So, so yeah, I'm just sitting in, in that and seeing where I'm landing. Yeah, I think uh, there is a, well, how can I say? In the, in, in the Zen tradition, as it's sort of developing in the United States, there's a tendency to misconstrue it as being completely... Uh, compatible with a, a sort of materialistic outlook uh, and because because it is compatible with a materialistic outlook in, in in a lot of ways you know which in which is different from a lot of sort of religions and mystical traditions that are like incompatible with it that that seek to deny science and things like that uh, so so there's a there's a sense to make the uh, there's a kind of a I get a feeling that a lot of people are making the mistake of thinking, oh, this is just, uh, you know, this is just all dry, you know, I, I figured it out. Science is right and you know, the materialistic outlook is right. So, so you have to kind of figure out a way. It's, I think it's more like what you're saying. It's an, it's an acknowledgement that, that these things happen and that they do have some kind of significance, but 
but it's it's also an understanding that if you go too far in that direction, that doesn't help anything, you know. And 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 society as a whole has tended to go too far in the other direction of of completely denying all of that stuff. And and I think that probably doesn't help either because people live their whole lives having experiences. I mean, part of the reason I got into Zen was I, I you know even as a child I had. I had weird experiences, not, not sort of enlightenment experiences, but things that just didn't make any sense, you know? And, and, and I looked at ways of framing those experiences. You know, I would get into reading books about, you know, all sorts of parapsychology and nutty stuff like that. And uh, I go, but I would always feel like, oh, this, this, this seems, this doesn't feel right to me either, you know? And, and maybe that's what attracted me to, to Zen, especially the way my first teacher presented it, because he, he was open to acknowledging these things could be, but he wasn't, he, wasn't, you know, he wasn't taking them the way a lot of people do, and you know, getting too excited about it. I think that's, yeah, I think that's important. Do you, is there a way to describe the difference between like what we call mystic experience and just insight gained through practice, or is there a difference? I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if there's a real big difference. I mean, it's just one way of saying it. I remember that Nishijima Roshi, when I first brought up the word mystical to him, he really didn't like it. He said, "There's no, there's no mystical," and and then I. I wish I could remember what I said to him. I sort of described to him what I meant by mystical. And he said, okay, well, then sometimes life is mystical, but it's never strange. <laughs> and, you know, he, English is not his first language, so, you know, he's just trying to find the right words to say it. But I, I like that. I like the way he said it, you know. It's, it's, it's sometimes mystical, but never strange. I think I get what he means, what he meant by that. And And... And yeah, I don't, I, there's insights gained from practice could be put into the realm of the mystical, but I don't think they need to be. I, I, think, I think mystical sen tends, to, uh, tends to imply that it's something not of this world or, or something like that, but I, but I think it's all of this world. You, it's, just, it's just there are aspects of this world that, that we tend to, that we don't understand, you know, and that we, and... And we tend to put those things off in a like, ah, let's not talk about that, you know. Uh, every so often I'll come across something, because I read a lot of weird stuff about science and what, you know, things people are, are saying about it. And, and I don't I wish I could remember the specifics, but there's something I was reading recently where the person was talking about these experiments that they've been doing where the scientists involved in, in them were sort of putting aside certain certain things they discovered because they couldn't, they, it didn't make sense, you know? And they're like, ah, oh, we can't make sense out of that, so let's, you know, let's look at this other thing. Um, and, but, but the, I think the person who wrote this thing, if I remember it correctly, was sort of a new agey type of person, was like trying, well, this is evidence that this, you know, and I'm like, oh, okay, that's why you, you know, you put those things aside. There's a lot going on that we don't understand. And, but yeah, I, I don't think there's, the, so, so any insights you gain from practice are, are I think, insights, if they're, if they're real insights, they're insights into 
the real world. They're not insights into some kind of other, you know, other special realm. They're, uh, they're right here. So, yeah, maybe mystical is not the best word. Yeah, I guess I'm curious, is there, how do you know when it's uh, an insight into the real world or not? I don't know if this anecdote helps answer that question, but it's, it's what comes to mind. I was at the San Francisco Zen Center a few years ago, like eating, just eating dinner or something with a bunch of people who, who were there. And there was a, a guy who started talking about how he said something like, I, I had, I thought I might have had an enlightenment experience once, but I came, I came here and the Roshi wasn't around, so I never found out if it was really an enlightenment experience or not. And that struck me because any, any experiences I've had that, that had a component where I was like, well, I don't know if that's real or not, usually weren't real, you know. But there are some experiences where you, you can kind of tell the difference. I don't know. I, I don't know. It, it seems to me that there's a, there's a difference. But um, learning that difference is, is maybe hard, I think. Uh, if, if, it, if the experience leaves you too excited, it's probably not a, a real one, you know? Because your, your, your own mind can just cough up the things you want, you know? And, and, it, and it's real interesting how that can happen. And, and, uh, and you can get kind of sucked into that because it, it confirms everything you thought was true, you know? Something that confirms everything you already thought was true is probably a, a good example of that's probably not real either, <laughs> you know. Uh, it's usually, it usually has some kind of a surprising element, but more, more surprising in a way of like, oh, I didn't know that was down there, <laughs> you know, like, like, you know, you find a shoe under your couch and go, oh, that's where that shoe was. I don't know, it's sort of that kind of a feeling. <laughs> I don't know if that makes any sense. You know, it, it's, it's not, it's not, you know, it's not that you find Narnia under your couch, <laughs> you know, um, uh, just, um, and, and, and if it, you know, and also you kind of have to let it sit for a time too, because that, that, uh, you know, these kind of experiences that can bowl you over a little bit uh, initially and then and then you kind of go oh okay I can I can live with that <laughs> you know after a while so you might not initially know it just keeps me I kept the quote that kept coming back to me was the Shakespeare quote which I think is like perfectly worded but there are more things in heaven and earth than your philosophers have dreamt of yeah yeah because it's not really saying they're wrong it's yeah. just saying there's a lot more out there I think about that a lot. Yeah, I think that's true, and that's actually uh, at the opening of King Kong versus Godzilla is that uh, quote. Whoa. So there you go. <laughs> that's where I first heard it. There's like a spinning globe, and then this voice comes on and says that. Yeah, I do. I do think we're living in a really weird time, though, just because there's so many different. We have access to so much information. So much of it's conflicting. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you, everybody's everybody's got their opinion, and and it's all it all kind of gets thrown out there unfiltered, 
And well, but not only that, but like there's like uh, so many scientific studies, they're not able to replicate the results in subsequent experiments yeah. and stuff like that. So you're like, what the fuck? Uh, <laughs> like, what? Yeah. So Zen to me seems like the only real, like, reasonable reaction to that, where you're just like, okay, this is it. Yeah, that's kind of it, and uh, and that's what what appeals to me about Zen too is that you kind you kind of um, you're not given a an, a set of answers or a you're not given a f well you are given a certain to a certain degree a, a framework to understand your experience, but it's a very oh it's very loose, you know, it's not it's not sort of boxed in. Every other religion that I ever examined sort of, you know, had a box you could put everything in. And, <clears throat> and this one is like, well, there's a box over there. <laughs> you can put it in that box if you want. <laughs> you can put it in that box, <laughs> you know. It's kind of what I felt like my teachers were telling me sometimes. Um, it, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't hold you to anything. And yeah, there's a lot of stuff, you know, when you... I've been I, I've been watching those ancient aliens, uh, the History Channel ancient aliens shows, and this is, I was watching one last night, going, oh, that's stupid," <laughs> you know. But but it's just so funny to see the the way things are put out, and and you go, "Ah, oh, there's people there's people watching this show who, you know, aren't aren't yeah, they're not really watching it the way I am, and 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 the way I think I I assume it's a, it's put out there in this somewhat tongue in cheek fashion but you don't you know but part of the conceit of the program is that it has to look very like a, a serious documentary so yeah I, and when we're living in a world where where we're becoming more and more required to think for ourselves you know and and that's that's hard for some people you know yeah, it's really hard for some people and and so maybe that's what what this what we're trying to pave the way for. I, I sometimes think maybe that's why Zen is kind of starting to come into Western society at a time when Western society is sort of losing its way. Um, yeah, I don't know where I'm going with that thought, but something like that. <laughs> we depend on your donations to support this podcast. To donate, go to hardcorezen.info slash donate. That's hardcorezen.info slash donate.